The reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's on the Pew Bibles, page 1145, if you'd like to follow it. The title of this chapter is The Church and Its Leaders. I'm going to have to take my glasses off. There we go. I can read now. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters it waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If anyone think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, 
or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John, would you like to come and share with us, please? Let's pray for John. Father, we thank you for John and Ruth. We thank you for their ministry to us. And now, Father, as John opens this chapter to us, we pray that you would speak it into our hearts. Give us ears to listen and responsive hearts to act. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be here with you this morning. Some time ago, Ruth and I uh, went to visit some friends in Holland. When we got there, there appeared to be an open space across the road opposite their house. When we left five days later, There was a new house standing there. It seemed as though that house had been built in five days. Of course, it was an illusion. I mean, apart from the fact that the walls and the roof and the doors and the windows and everything had been delivered, ready-made, via a a succession of huge lorries, um, the ground itself had been carefully prepared with foundations being dug. And, of course, arrangements for drainage and uh, a a concrete screed laid for the floor. And, of course, that was all the time-consuming bit, preparing the ground. And as we turn to our theme today, which is laying good foundations, the question is um, what's going on in our own lives and in our own church in that respect. I I remember when I worked in London... I used to go past a large hole in the ground and it was there for months and I wondered what on earth was going on. But then, after a very long time, a building began to appear, walls began to go up and then progress was very quick. It just brought home to me the importance of careful preparation and the digging of proper foundations. So I said, that's the theme today, as we look at our second in our series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and what he says in chapter 3, as we've just heard read, about the image of a building to describe his ministry. There's a change of metaphor. He begins with talking about horticulture, planting seeds and watering them, and then suddenly, in the middle of verse 9, he completely changes the image. He says, you are God's field, God's building. And then that grabs him, that thought. And he goes on to describe how, by the grace of God, he came there as a wise builder. That's the Church Bible's translation of a Greek word, which is architectone. Not exactly an architect, as we know today, but rather more like a clerk of works somebody who takes the plans for the building drawn up by the architect and translates them into a reality of bricks and mortar. So Paul sees his own ministry 
as being the one who brings the message of God's plan of salvation and turns it through his preaching and the grace of God into the reality of changed lives. This is his ministry of the gospel, building God's church. Of course, he shares this ministry with others, as he goes on to say. At Corinth, if you did your homework last week and read Acts chapter 18, as we were instructed to, you will have discovered that uh, Paul was only able to stay there for a limited period of time. And he moved on from Corinth and had to leave it to others to continue the work. The problem, and the main reason why Paul wrote this letter, is that cracks have begun to appear in the building. As we see in verse 4, some of the believers at Corinth identified with Paul's teaching, and others preferred Apollos. And if we look back to chapter 1, we see it was even worse than that, because uh, another party said that they followed Kephas. Who was Kephas? None other than the Apostle Peter. Now, there's no evidence that Peter ever went to Corinth, but we do know from that Acts chapter 18 that Paul, as his usual custom, started by preaching in the synagogue as a qualified Jewish rabbi, and then when an opposition party grew up and turned him out of the synagogue, he uh, took his converts elsewhere. But the Jewish converts tended to look to Peter as a leader. And then in chapter 1, it's even worse still, because there's another super spiritual group who say, oh no, we don't belong to these divisions, we don't belong to these human leaders, we just follow Christ. But they only succeeded in producing yet another split. So we do know from this letter that there are at least four different parties at odds with one another in the church in Corinth at the time Paul wrote this letter. And it wasn't merely a case of liking one preacher's style better than another. Paul was concerned that some at Corinth might be building on faulty foundations. He says in verse 11, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And later on in this letter, as we shall see later in the series... Paul writes quite a bit about the diversity of gifts, how God by his Holy Spirit has given different gifts to each of the believers in their service for him. And as for Paul, he knows very well that he doesn't have a monopoly of the gifts which the Corinthian church needs. He sees that others will rightly be making their contributions to building up the church in that place. But one thing he's sure will be fatal. If any teachers start to encourage division by magnifying their own importance, leading to what he describes in verse 3 as jealousy and quarreling, then the outcome will be disastrous for the church and for the gospel. Far from adding to these divisions, Paul wants the church to see actually the advantages of having different builders. Instead of identifying with one to the exclusion of others, why don't they see that all the different gifts which these people bring are a help rather than a cause of faction and separation? 
He asks in verse 5, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And he sums this up in the last two verses. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. So instead of quarreling, count your blessings. Paul has no doubt about the root cause of the trouble of what is going on. He accuses the Corinthian church of being worldly-minded. Christians are forgetting their holy calling. The church isn't just a human organization like any other. The building which is being constructed by the preaching of Paul and the others in Corinth is nothing less than a sacred temple. He writes in verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, interestingly, Paul uses the same words almost later on in chapter 6 of this letter, but with a different purpose. He says in chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? But in that case, the you refers to the... um, is to each believer individually. Each of us must keep our bodies holy because each one of us is a temple, a sacred dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 3, he's talking about the whole church, the whole Christian community, and you, the word you is plural. All of you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You make up the temple by being built together into this sacred people of God. Now we know from Acts chapter 18 that when Paul was turned out of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, the believers first of all met in the house next door, which belonged to a man named Titius Justus, who was not only a convert, but also apparently had a sizable house where they could meet, though perhaps it was a little bit inflammatory to be meeting right bang next door to the synagogue. But you have a picture here in Corinth, a place filled with pagan temples on every corner and a synagogue. And then here's this secular building, an ordinary house. And the Christians meeting in it were actually building a temple not made with hands, a spiritual dwelling for the Holy Spirit among them. So in Paul's use of this metaphor of building, we have two ways in which we must make sure we're laying a good foundation in making God's temple. The first is in our church structures, what we do together as a community. Is it built on true foundations? And the other way is what we do in our own personal lives to build that temple for God in our own personal discipleship. Let's think about each in turn. So first of all, the Christian community. If you stand inside one of our cathedrals or great churches and watch visitors coming in, what's the first thing they do? I think in the most cases they look up, don't they? They look 
to see the enormous columns and the vaulting high above their heads and the beautiful carving. And they say, wonderful to think. This has stood here for centuries. But do they think how it stood there for centuries? The answer to that question is not above their heads. It's underneath their feet. How good are the foundations? Some of you may know that just before the First World War, there was a diver, an old-fashioned diver, one of these chaps who wears these heavy helmets and uh, has air pumped down to keep him alive when he's underwater. A diver named William Walker, who actually saved Winchester Cathedral from collapse. He did it by working underneath the building in near total darkness, underwater, for five years on his own. It was an incredible feat of endurance and heroism. And it saved the foundations of that great building. Carried out where no one could see it. No one knew what was going on. Or if they did, they couldn't actually see. And even William Walker himself couldn't see very clearly what he was doing. So how does this apply to the spiritual temple we're building in our Christian community? Well, let's remember, first of all, that much of the important work of the Holy Spirit goes on invisibly in any congregation. A preacher is usually completely unaware of how the word affects his congregation. I mean, exactly what it does spiritually for his hearers or her hearers. A pastor may be unconscious of how his or her ministry has helped to strengthen the fellowship has been a word in season said at the right time for people who are in difficulties. What we tend to value as Christian communities is the superstructure, what can be seen above ground level, what can be seen and measured in our churches, numbers and activities. We hear of vibrant, growing congregations, flourishing ministry, great preaching, and we think, there's a fine church, and perhaps there is. Thank God for that. But how quickly, time and again, the most impressive examples seem to disintegrate. Maybe when a gifted individual moves on, like Paul did at Corinth, or more often when the devil finds an entrance through division, jealousy and quarreling, or through scandal and immorality. Of course, how we build the church is very important. But where we build the church and on what foundations is even more important. Paul refers to the use of gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw as materials for building. Some of this will stand the test of time when persecution or other kinds of disaster strike. But other aspects of our fellowship are perhaps of less significance even though we may spend a great deal of time arguing about such things as mission plans, the latest human-centered schemes, making our, attract, our worship more attractive for people who are not familiar with it. Or perhaps, on the other hand, we may be arguing that established customs and traditions, which people insisted can't be changed, but in reality had no essential link to the foundation stone, which is Jesus Christ. All of this superstructure I'm talking about, which we need, of course, 
just as we need a literal building here to meet in. It's essential to the continued operation of the church. But nothing of it will last unless it's firmly grounded on Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the true foundation stone. Now what about that foundation in our personal lives? I'm not going to say a great deal here because I see that in two weeks' time, Rachel will be preaching on this when we get to chapter 6. But it's also an important aspect of building the temple of the Lord. Only we ourselves know the reality of our faith below ground, as it were. What is deep within us? What is the principles on which our life is based? What we build on and with our faith, the superstructure, is the only way people can see what Christ means to us. And this is where the nature of the superstructure, of course, is very important. Are we building with gold, silver, and costly stones, the material of a life truly dedicated to God? Or is it all wood, hay, and straw, stuff which can easily go up in flames? The point of these analogies is not to despise wood, hay, and straw, which are valuable materials in their own place. But Paul is trying to emphasize the need to develop in, with our faith qualities which have the power to endure through hardship, through persecution, and ultimately before God's judgment. How far have you been tested in your faith? Some Christians have to endure a lot. Others can coast along, supported by loving friends and family, and never know how much being a disciple of Jesus Christ can cost. Perhaps God in his mercy allows ones whose faith is weaker to be spared some of the harsher trials. Paul knew that most of his hearers in his day certainly faced the possibility of persecution. And at the last, we must all stand before God's throne to give account. And that's where Paul's message to the Corinthians and to us this morning is one of encouragement. Even if the superstructure of our lives is almost entirely the equivalent of wood, hay, and straw, we're not saved by our works. What saves us is the strength of our foundation in Jesus Christ. I began this sermon with two examples from my own experience of how any building depends upon how good its foundations are. And the foundations are not only the most important part of the building, but also take the most time in construction. Let me now just explain how that is true of our faith. Paul writes in verse 11 here, the only solid foundation for the church is Jesus Christ and faith in him. And he describes this foundation as one that is already laid. No one has to lay it again. We're not digging foundations. It was the finished work of Christ on the cross, planted in the ground at Calvary. And when the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb, that is when the foundations were finally laid. Just as Ruth and I witnessed the assembly of those different parts of a house on a foundation already prepared, so your faith and your salvation 
are built on that finished work of Christ. Yes, we're used to saying we're saved by faith and not by works. But sometimes we make faith into another kind of work by thinking that we've got to somehow or another be strong in faith to withstand the challenges that face us. But it's Christ himself, not our faith, that is the foundation on which we build our temples. That foundation is ready-made and available to anyone who comes to Christ and trusts completely in him. At the moment we do that, we've based our lives on the one rock that endures and will stand at the last day, the rock of ages. And what assurance that gives us for the future. The one guarantee of unity in the church is to have our foundation in Christ. Any differences will then be about what and how we're building on that. Issues about the superstructure, which will only endure if they can stand the test of God's judgment. But let us never think that because that foundation is ready-made, it cost God nothing to provide it. The architect's plan of salvation for humanity was there from the beginning, but it took thousands of years from the creation to the cross for that foundation to be laid, and it took the life of the Son of God. Amen.